I'm haunted by the kiss that you should never have given me. And the whole world has to answer right now to tell you what's good. Who said? Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersox. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we're your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode will focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Twitter at Mouse Madness Pod or send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Kyle, we're back. We're sadder than ever as we talk some Disney sad boys. Yeah, since last week, I've had Scream from High School Musical 3 on repeat in my head. Can't stop thinking about it because uh, as sad as I was to see that sad boy go, um, it's an incredible song. It's an incredible sad boy song. That might be a sad boy anthem, to be honest. That, like If we were to declare sure. an anthem for sad boys, that one could be it. Uh, but here to help us declare who is the saddest Disney boy is our friend Kadeem. Kadeem, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You know, I always love to chat with y'all. Yeah. So uh, after sitting on this for a little bit uh, and knowing what the Elite Eight is, were there any surprises from last week's choices? I know that we had one big upset in the beginning, but do you think that we might have missed the mark uh, with any of our characters that we moved on to this next round? Um, you know, I was surprised about Eeyore, um, but I mean, it makes sense in context and everything else. I mean, I was in agreement, uh, except for the ones that were tiebreakers, of course, but I think that, uh, the right characters moved on. All right. Well, I'm glad that you feel that way because we're going to be talking about a pretty nice elite eight here. So let's go ahead and review before we talk a little spoonful of sugar. We have the number 16, whiny Will Turner versus number eight, Ian Lightfoot. Down the bracket, it's number four, Jack Skellington versus number five, Davy Jones. Across the bracket, we have number two, Sadness versus number seven, Anakin Skywalker. And to round out our elite eight, we have the number three, The Beast versus number six, Quasimodo. It's a whole lot of sadness, Chris. And in order to deal with it, I think it's time to talk a little spoonful of sugar. This week, I got another beer. I'm, I'm trying to keep the beer streak alive, but I'm, I'm terrified that I'm going to break the streak. Uh, I've got a beer from Industrial Arts Brewing Company, which is based in Garnerville, New York. I don't know where Garnerville is, but it <laughs> is in New York. And it is called Wrench. It is a Northeast India Pale Ale with... Notes of lush and tropical zest. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a try live to see if we uh, are keeping the streak alive of good beers. All good things must come to an end. <laughs> oh no! The beer streak is over. We have a dud. Tastes like someone's armpit. Oh wow! That is one of the worst beers I've ever had in my life. <laughs> you might actually Ooh. cry during this bracket as you drink it. I feel like I need to brush my teeth now. <laughs> oh, oh, Kyle, what do you got? 
All right. Well, in honor of me spending 45 minutes laying out the plot lines of Pirates of the Caribbean, I am bringing in a rum drink. I'm drinking a classic. I'm drinking a dark and stormy. This is four ounces of ginger beer, two ounces of dark rum. It is delicious and enough to swashbuckle with the best of like Will Turner and Davy Jones. Kadeem, what are you drinking this week? I'm sticking on the red wine train. I mean, in my opinion, there's nothing sadder. I'm with it. I am with it. Well, Chris, we have our Elite Eight matchups. We have our drinks in hand. We're ready to talk sad, boys. So let's get into it with this first matchup. The number 16 will turn over the number eight. Ian Lightfoot. Do I have to spend more time on Will Turner? Do you, does everybody feel like they're at the good spot with Will Turner after I laid out exactly who he was in the last episode? I mean, because... I, I have more Will Turner we can talk about, but it's just he's going up against Ian Lightfoot, which is just kind of like he, Ian Lightfoot doesn't stand a chance. No, and I think is one the, point is the thing. Yeah, and I think that one point that I will say here before we do move Will on, I think collectively is the thought is uh that sense of like the idea that you brought up last episode of like i'm not worth the love of whoever i'm after right in that first movie he refuses to like acknowledge that elizabeth might be like semi into him before the pirates show up when he makes the sword for um for james norrington uh to essentially like proposed to elizabeth with and elizabeth tells will that will can call her elizabeth after calling her miss swan the entire time and he like refuses to do it because he's so much like oh little old me no she can never be into me this world i'm just a blacksmith i'm a apprentice of a blacksmith i'm not worth anything like i'm just gonna keep calling you miss swan and that was like moment one of like you guys are gonna have a long and rocky road because she even just like gives the look of like, are you joking? Read the signs. Communication error number one of many on that trip. Um, but it really sets the stage for who will become. So yeah, Ian Lightfoot, sorry, man. Like you, he was sad, but he was more hopeful than he was sad that entire movie. He was like very, very convinced that he was going to see his father. As I, I think as most of us were, um, thinking that this Pixar movie would end with that kind of ending of you're going to see his father and it's going to be really emotional and sad and then father's going to go away. Or they could go the route of like Coco where father's not going to go away and actually stay around longer. Um, so like, yeah, he had a he had a sad path, but it's not the sad boy energy that we're really hoping for in this bracket. I, I agree. I don't think he really embodies the the energy, but he does have a few little traits that I think I think we can go over. Something that he has a difficult time dealing with at the very beginning of Onward is it's his birthday, and his mom is pressuring him to have a birthday party, and he really does not want to have a birthday party. And and I think that's that's very sad boy, like not wanting to be social. Like these big social functions are like a sad boy's biggest fear, like <laughs> feeling like you have to put on airs for a bunch of people, right? He wears a hoodie when it's clearly warm enough outside that people are comfortable <laughs> in shorts and a t-shirt. And I don't want to say like I was a sad boy in high school, but like I 
was often sad and I wore a hoodie every single day of high school. And I went to school in the inland valleys of Southern California where it was 100 degrees on the regular. Right. Not only did I wear a hoodie, but that hood was up (laughs) when I was walking between classes. (laughs) <laughs> and those Ray-Ban glasses were on whenever I was outside. I straight up looked like the Unabomber walking around <laughs> Ramona High School campus. Like it was, it was a thing. Like I was very afraid to like have my body exposed to the world. And so like seeing Ian like in this hoodie, I know that like the hoodie doesn't really mean that in Onward. It's it's a symbol of like his connection with his father. But like I thought that triggered a memory inside of me. Yeah, and like the like the insecurities of a sad boy, like even with Ian. Yep, yep. He keeps a journal, or I guess a diary, if you want to call it that as well, <laughs> where he has a checklist of like things he wants to do in his day, which is like invite people to party and be more like dad and like speak up more. He tries to do that in his homeroom class when. That guy, what uh, Gorgamon, he's got his feet up on the desk in front of him, which is Ian's desk. And he's like, hey, Gorgamon, can you put your feet down? And Gorgamon's like, bro, man, like I got to elevate my feet to get that blood going to my head. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and he's like, well, like, I, just, I can't sit down. And he's like, well, you want me to fail school then? All right. <laughs> and so Ian sits down. It's like, it's that like not quite bullying but it's like 90 percent of bullying where it's like you're taking advantage of a kid that you know is a softy and you know he's not going to say anything yeah um and and ian just takes it you know and and like that just adds to to like his energy at the beginning of onward super socially awkward guy when he goes up to invite those kids to his birthday party he like can't formulate a, a sentence he's like if you uh, like cake, there's a cake at my house. Uh, actually, uh, and they're like, are you, are you saying there's a, a birthday party at your house and you want us to go? Because if you are, like, we would love to go. <laughs> and he's like, actually, my birthday is canceled. Bye. And like, that is a, a real sad boy thing to me is like not being able to. It's like almost putting a target on yourself where you think everyone hates you or like everyone's out to get you. And like, you have these nice kids in front of you that genuinely are interested in being your friend. And you just can't see that you're like blind to the real world. And, uh, I think, I think, I think, I think that's sad. Well, here, can I, uh, pose a question that has nothing to do with sad boy tendencies? It's just a question about the onward universe. I would love to answer that because I probably have the same question. So this takes place in a a mythical world. Doesn't exist. There are little to no rules in this established universe by Pixar. Um, And yet our British actor, Tom Holland, has to force an American accent throughout the entire thing. Why, Why couldn't Ian just have the accent? There's literally no rules. There's no rules in this universe, but everyone has to have the same accent. I think it would seem unrelatable if like your family members didn't have the same accent as you. Sure. The family dynamics. Yes, for sure. For sure. But it just seemed so trivial to me. But I guess if people were distracted like the entire movie, like, why don't these brothers speak the same? Then 
Sure. Here's my Onward Universe question of the day. Ian is inviting friends to party. They also live in houses made out of mushrooms. So when the people in the Onward Universe are partying, do they just take off little pieces of their house and eat them and go on a crazy psychedelic adventure? Yes. <laughs> what do you think the entire movie was about? They ate the, they ate yeah. the mushroom See, and they went on an adventure. <laughs> exactly. Like this was this was his birthday party. It was all happening in his head. Hey man, do you want to come over and sneak some pieces of my bedroom lighter? <laughs> He's hiding it behind like one of those posters in his room. There's just a whole like dug out like hole. Are you eating your bedroom walls, an idiot? <laughs> no. <laughs> Then he's the sad. Then he's the sad boy. If that scene happened, we would have a discussion on our hands. Well, Ian does lock himself in his room at some point right. to listen to the audio tape of his dad and like locking yourself in your bedroom. Yeah, the bedroom is the sad boy safe space, yeah. and, and that's where Ian goes. Yeah, it is. You're right. I appreciate that Ian goes to a high school and like it seems like his adolescence is semi-realistic. I appreciate that. Uh, but he kind of becomes Elsa though where like he goes on a superhero journey and becomes a big hero guy by the end and it's like oh sad boy days are over I guess you're super confident and likable and you're you're a king now <laughs> and Will like dies a sad boy but <laughs> like you know he he emerges from the ocean and he's got a black bandana on and his shirt is open and there's a scar on his chest where his heart used to be and he is showing that thing off. He is like, I am heartless and proud of it. Yep. Definitely yep. not a happy ending. No. And, and they. Go ahead. No, don't let me go. Go ahead. <laughs> and then they get down and dirty on that beach. And Will Turner is kissing Elizabeth Swan's knee <laughs> so hard. So hard. <laughs> caressing that leg like he's never seen a leg in his life. But it's not the leg. It's just the knee area. <laughs> it was like Disney censorship was on set and they were like, keep, keep that mouth area in and around the patella. Better not go up any further. Better not go down any further. Keep in the knee area. Everyone knows no one does that. And that's super unsexy. So stay on that kneecap, boy. Uh, yeah. And then, I mean, like, Will eventually, not eventually, he's he's sad boy till the end, but then he's like revived. Like we can only assume that his sad boy tendencies continued through the fourth movie because we never see him. And then in the fifth movie, we get two quick tastes of sad boy Will and sad boy Will is now just being haunted by like. The the original Davy Jones, <laughs> like that's that's it, he's. He's living with a mute Elizabeth Swan because she doesn't speak in the fifth movie and is having nightmares. Like he's he's well. He he's he's forever gonna be whiny will. All right. I'm gonna move him on to officially. Kadeem, do we agree with leaving Ian Lightfoot in the round of eight? Ian who? <laughs> Mike Job. Mike Job. All right, let's move on to the next matchup. It's number four, Jack Skellington versus number five, Davy Jones. I didn't get to talk a whole lot about Davy Jones last episode because Kyle gave us the... Because uh, <laughs> I did it for you. The abridged version of the life of Davy Jones. Barely. Um, Davy Jones 
emerges into our lives towards the beginning of Dead Man's Chest with his unnecessarily theatrical death ritual (laughs) where he gets all of his crew members to go in front of him and line up the people almost dying on their hands and knees in the rain, in the dark, and then he comes in. He's like, I'm going to get my pipe out. I'm going to lean right in. I'm going to light it up. Take a puff. Do you fear death? <laughs> and he does like a little riddle, like back and forth with them. And then he either gives them the chop and they go, or he gets them to join the crew. Like, this is a man who generally loves theatrics. Yeah. Like, he loves the drama. I mean, he oh, yeah. eats it up. He thrives on it because this is so unnecessary. You know, you can just line up to someone and be like, here's the deal. You can join my crew, live another hundred years, or we can kill you right now. Which one do you want? A man who cut out his heart because it hurt too much from the guilt of betraying his lover is not going to reason with people that are almost dead. He's going he's gonna to play it up. It's perfect. So we get that. A few minutes later, cut to the Flying Dutchman, where Davy Jones is shredding on the pipe organ Oof. with <laughs> steam coming out of it. And he is like, and that song is so intense, so scary. And as he's getting into it, the dude is laughing. He's like, <laughs> he's just like that that brooding, evil, mustache-twirling, phantom-of-the-opera-type dude that is is just, it's ridiculous and it's absurd and, and I'm loving every second of it. And don't, don't forget the, like, ultimate sad boy, like, moment of noticing their own sadness and then being mad that they're sad. So when he's playing this, like, organ the locket pops open and it plays the love theme that he and Calypso have for each other. They have similar lockets playing the same song and he hears it and a a tear goes down his eye onto his tentacle and his tentacle lifts it up. And in like one of the, this movie is so well done with everything Davy Jones, like CGI wise, like it's such a, it still holds up. It still holds up so well. But he lifts up the teardrop in front of the camera and it focuses on it. And you can see him in the blurry background starting to get a little twitchy. And it goes back on him and his tentacles start like going nuts all around his face. And he's just like losing it that he's still hurting about the one that he hurt, even though his heart is out of his body. What a sad boy. (laughs) Incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Um, Jack Skellington, <sighs> I don't get this guy. I mean, I understand. He displays some sad boy things that we talked about early. He's got the running away. The beginning of the movie, he's very set up as like misunderstood, very emotional, very dramatic, um, loves the arts. <laughs> but he like, I don't know. He starts going down like a not so sad boy path when he starts getting a little bit overconfident about the Christmas thing. 
Because sad boys are like constantly second guessing themselves. And and just like the enthusiasm and and the hubris that Jack Skellington displays as he like kidnaps Santa Claus and like thinks that he can like put on this whole production. I don't know. I think it's it's a little bit he bites off a little bit more than a normal sad boy might. He does have a, a nice little lament at the end of the movie when he's laying in the graveyard in the arms of like the angel statue. And he says, spoiled all, spoiled all. Everything's gone wrong. What have I done? Find a deep cave to hide in. In a million years, they'll find me only dust and a plaque that reads, here lies poor old Jack. Uh, I mean, that's a diary entry right there. That's a Screamo song right there. That's a lock me in my own room sentence right uh, there. Yeah, and, and Jack does spend a good amount of this movie locked in his, in his tower, you know, like trying to be away from the outside world. Um, but it's, I want to say he leads with his passions, but he also like seems to really rely on like science and data gathering and the scientific method. He literally reads a scientific method book and he takes all this like lab equipment from Dr. Finkelstein and he's running all of these experiments and stuff. Um, uh, he seems to have this observational quality that I don't think a lot of sad boys have, like, like an awareness for the world around him. And I have a question about Nightmare Before Christmas, because this is where I got lost. Does he realize that he's doing Christmas wrong? No. You Because th- he's like in the town hall scene and he's trying to describe to them how like stockings are filled with toys and candy. And then everyone's like, oh, like put dead foot in it and like a, a trap that scares people. And he like leans into the camera and has an aside that's like, oh, well, might as well give them what they want. And then talks about how Sandy Claus is this big, scary guy. So, like, it seemed like he had it. And then he realized that, like, the Halloween people were taking it in a different direction. And he maybe was like, all right, the only way I'm going to get what I want is if we, like, meet somewhere in the middle and let them do, like, Halloween-branded Christmas. Yeah, and I think it was also... Yeah, I see that point now. And I think that at the same time it was the writers showing us that like Halloween was in his DNA and no matter what he couldn't escape from it even if he felt like that wasn't his passion anymore it's like who he was and that's what he comes to realize at the end um so it's a great story technique but I guess you're right when he does have that aside he kind of gives in to the Halloween which just shows that he's not as upset with his current situation as he thinks he is there's some great pieces here to jack but it's absolutely davy jones (laughs) sorry yeah you uh took that line at the very end that i wanted to say and then even the the first song that you talked about last week was literally called jack's lament so he homeboy is sad and i think what makes him still a good sad boy is that this misdirected passion makes him blind to everything around him. Like he thinks that the world's against him. He thinks that he doesn't fit in. He's the pumpkin king. (laughs) People love him. And he was 
born to do this, even though he doesn't think he is. And so uh, I don't remember if you read this specific line about that, but it's when he in, in Jack's Lament, that first song where he he turns into a sad boy, he says, yet year after year, it's the same routine. And I grow so weary of the sound of screams. And I, Jack, the pumpkin king, have grown so tired of the same old thing. And it's like, that's that triggering moment, right? That's when he's like, I'm, I, I think that I'm meant for more. I should go do more. And in that, he turns into the sad boy of just wanting more when that's not really what's making him better. And I almost have a, like a PL Travers effect here where like Sally is a sad boy in a lot of this. Sally yes, is yes, yes. constantly chasing Jack. She's in love with Jack and wants to do everything for him, even though he's like awful because he's not realizing that she's even existing. And that's because his own sad boyness is driving him to want something that isn't going to fulfill him that we all see doesn't isn't going to fulfill him, which is also a trend of a lot of these sad boys, you know, like the, this love you're chasing and this thing that you want is wrong and it's not what you should actually be going after. Uh, same with Jack and and same with Sally. I mean, Sally ends up winning in the end. So I guess like her sad boy tendencies was more of a device to break Jack out of his. But I, I still think Jack had that sad boy journey of like, this is what I think I want. I'm going to go after it. And then that realization moment is the end when he's like, actually, I belong with Halloween in Halloween town. So, yeah, I mean, as I brought up with Davy Jones in that in that scene of him being mad at a teardrop, it's just that rage factor that definitely puts him over the edge here. And, and we'll obviously talk about Davy Jones again. Uh, but Kadeem, do you see anything else out of Jack that could make him even more of a sad boy than what we already described? Is there anything that we're missing here? I mean, not really. Um, when I first saw Jack on there, I'm like, oh, Jack, like, he's not really that sad. Um, I, I think that, like, because of, you know, the, I guess, maybe subject matter of the movie or, like, maybe his character design and, like, he's all about Halloween, which could theoretically lend itself to more, like, depressive energy or imagery, I mean, um, that kind of takes him a little bit further in this sad boy category, but I like, he's not really that sad to be honest, in my opinion. That's a, that's a good point. I think he, he has strong brand appeal. Oh yeah. And I mean, like you think about Jack Skellington and where he shows up in the mid two thousands, which is that like hot topic (laughs) and, and a, a band that I directly associate with Jack Skellington for some reason is good. Charlotte. And Good Charlotte had a plenty of songs in which they poised themselves as the sad boy. Big sad boy energy is projected onto Jack because of that, I think, for me. Uh, but he does have sad boy tendencies. So we get sad boy out of Jack in, in our lives, just not in this movie. I just think Jack is so like optimistic most of the time and like thinks it's going to work out and thinks it's going to happen, you know, and like every now and then he like falls into the sad boy trap but for the most part i just feel like i get the like impression of optimism from him yeah totally false confidence is a hell of a drug 
<laughs> All right, let's hop across the bracket to the next Elite Eight matchup. It's number two, Sadness versus number seven, Anakin, and it's Anakin for me. I, I didn't move on Sadness last time. I don't think that she's sad boy energy. I think she's literally the epitome of what it is to be sad, uh, but not overdramatic. She's sadness in its purest form, I don't think is overdramatic, and that's what sadness is in this movie. Being that emotion, which is the purest form of sadness. Anakin is just sad boy. (laughs) So sad boy that he turns into one of the greatest villains of all time. You know, like acting on passion, thinking the world's against him so much so that even when he gets burnt up, gets got in a a bed of lava, he's going to rebuild himself and seek revenge and build a planet that's designed to blow up other planets. You know, like sad boy energy. Revenge energy is sad boy energy. Uh, And Anakin is that. So for me, uh, it's definitely Anakin. But I know, Chris, you have some sad boy Anakin moments to talk about. I know you do because you just rewatched those prequels. Oh my gosh. I I have an unlimited bag of of Anakin here. Um, It was such a treat to go back and, and watch these movies specifically focusing on Anakin's sad boy energy. And that's really my favorite thing. I think that's come out of this podcast is like watching movies that you've already seen before with the very specific set of glasses on. There are movies we've talked about three, four, five times on this bracket. And like, you have to go back and watch it again and look for these certain things that you've probably noticed before, but never really taken the time to like break down the intricacies of it. And so I, I, I liked the prequels objectively when I was a child. I think the first prequel movie came out when I was like five or six years old. And uh, this was pre-social media, pre-internet. And the internet on the whole, at least the internet space that I live in, has decided the prequels are trash. And I tend to agree with that. And so I really didn't want to rewatch these movies. And I didn't. I I fast forwarded through all of the Obi-Wan stuff and all of the boring Qui-Gon stuff. And I watched every single Anakin scene in the prequels, as well as the final scene of Return of the Jedi. And it was the best way to watch the Star Wars prequels. Like, (laughs) if anyone like is dragging their feet watching these, like I highly encourage just go in there. Just fast forward to the Anakin parts and just enjoy the show. Uh, Hayden Christensen puts on an absolute clinic in acting like an overly dramatic teenager. I mean, it's great. <laughs> and we get to see him again the- in this Obi-Wan series. He'll be back. Cannot wait. Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace. There isn't a whole lot of sad boy stuff because he's like nine years old. And you only get like some flashes of it. I think he's a little bit testy when Padme's talking to him in Watto's shop. He's like, I'm not a slave. My name is Anakin. Or when people are like, you can't drive a pod racer. You're not old enough. Blah. He seems to have kind of a chip on his shoulder. He's really sad when he makes it to Coruscant and Samuel L. Jackson and Yoda are grilling him. Which, like, what an epic duo to be grilled by. <laughs> I was like, going to say. <laughs> you got Yoda on your left and Samuel L. Jackson on your right. Good luck defending yourself, dude. 
<clears throat> but yeah, they're like, dude, you're afraid. He's like, no, I'm not afraid. I just missed my mom. And <laughs> there you go. Like, that's how it all goes down. Episode three, uh, the beginning of the movie, he's not super sad boy. He's he's kind of outgrown it somewhat. He's mostly just confused and like trying to figure out like what's happening in the movie, just like I am. <laughs> uh, but but then like once he decide he's going to turn dark side is when like it's like the sad boy climax and and Anakin's standing on the balcony in his dope apartment and the sun's going down and a tear runs down his cheek a single tear and he turns away from the camera and he walks away and then that's when he decides to go go execute execute order 66 <laughs> And and go go murk on some younglings, you know. Of course. Um, yeah, and then and then he becomes Bacon Boy, and he's like just really, <laughs> really helpless, and he leaves us with a great, great sad boy uh, overreaction when he gets the Darth Vader suit on finally, and he's like, "Where's Padme?" And the Emperor's like, "She's dead. She died." <laughs> And he's like, no, no, no. And he like gets on his hands and knees. And it's like the most cliche, terrible, yeah. cheesy, stupid thing. And like, if you're watching that movie from a, a film perspective and a Star Wars perspective, you're like, this is stupid. But if you're looking, if you're looking for over the top sad boy Anakin, you're like, yes, yeah. yes, I just hit the jackpot. Yeah. Like, yeah. We know Darth Vader as this like cold, calculated, mean, stiff guy who he's hiding more power than he's showing uh and you see hayden christensen just throw all of that out the window in an instant um and it's 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 absolutely beautiful i got more talk about it next round moving anakin on kadeem do you agree yeah i mean it's like you know eeyore from the last episode sadness is kind of uh one-dimensional in a way and I do think that like it is over dramatic sadness uh, at some points, but it's just there's not enough variety and emotion there. So um, you know, it's the the single emo tear d- during sunset for me. <laughs> there you go. Well, let's move on to the last round of eight matchup. It's number three, the Beast versus number six, Quasimodo. Uh, Beast, I wasn't too high on last episode. I think his range of emotions is is not great. I think he displays a lot of anger, probably a lot of fear as well. But he never really reaches those like pits of sorrow, and he doesn't really have those mood swings that I really associate with a sad boy. Quasimodo doesn't necessarily have mood swings either, but he does show more dynamic range of emotions. Uh, we meet Quasimodo at the roof of the Notre Dame and he sings out there, which I think is a super underrated Disney song. We've talked about it a few times on this podcast. It did make our field of 32 (laughs) best Disney songs. (laughs) Um, He's got a good line. Safe behind these windows and these parapets of stone, gazing at the people down below me all my life. I watch them as I hide up here alone, hungry for the histories they show me. Wow. Emo. Oh, this one, this one gets a little weird. Every day they shout and scold and go about their lives, heedless of the gift it is to be them. If I was in their skin, I'd treasure 
every instant. <laughs> so, so this is good sad boy. It's like, I'm alone up here by myself. Look at all those people out there. They have no idea how lucky they are to be quote unquote, a normal person from the perspective of the sad boy. Right. It, it, it like it angers you to see people living their normal lives or like it hurts you um, because you feel like you can never be like them. And then Quasi talks about getting in their skin and like that's poetic. But if you think about it literally, like <laughs> like that's that's a hardcore sad boy stuff. <laughs> like that's something you would find in like a, a metalcore or like a screamo song, like actually getting in someone's skin. So Quasimodo wants to go to the Festival of Fools. He does it. He sneaks out. He goes. He wins the King of Fools award. He's super juiced. And um, Kyle, we get an appearance from our very best friend, Bill Fagerbacky, the voice of Patrick Starr, (laughs) the guy from Under Wraps, the guy from... The ultimate Christmas gift. He plays a guard who throws a tomato at Quasimodo. What? And he's like, you think he's ugly now? Watch this. As soon as that guy said that, I was like, there's a boy. Let's go. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, I think that that actor is the like official mascot of this podcast. Always showing up when we least expect, and every single time we are so happy to see him. That's literally his only line, and it's perfect. So he starts chucking tomatoes at Quasimodo. The crowd turns on him, and they like throw some ropes around him. And I think this is kind of like a, a metaphor for for what it feels internally to be a sad boy. It's it's this expectation you think society has on you really pulling you down Mm -hmm. like not allowing you to be the person that you are we get into his relationship with asmerelda asmerelda rolls up to the cathedral and starts singing god help the outcast which is an incredibly amazing disney song i mean this is like the, the thematic material that i really appreciate in a disney movie and quasi really like feels for her in this moment and in the example of the beast or Bruce Banner, you've got like the beauty and the beast dynamic, which, which is kind of sad boy. You know, I see myself as a beast. Like how could a beauty ever fall for someone like me? But then like the other sad boy love fantasy is like, I'm a sad boy. I'm looking for a sad girl and we can be sad together. <laughs> and we can be like an epic, sad, emotional combo. And it's like a, an expectation that there's some type of like sad fusion where, where the world stops and you live inside the eye of a hurricane. And, and that I think is, is what makes Quasimodo's ears perk up when he hears Esmeralda singing about her plight. So Esmeralda comes upstairs and Quasimodo got a secret art project in his bedroom, which that's <laughs> a real sad boy thing to do. He got some, got some art going on. He also uh, named the bells in the cathedral. I mean, which is a, it's a little bit neurotic, I guess. Then he, he helps Esmeralda escape. He gets kissed. And he's super juiced on it, of course. Of course. Then he sings a song about it, which like, of course, we love that in a sad boy. Let's sing a song about what just happened. He sings Heaven's Light. He says, no face as hideous as my face was ever meant for heaven's light. But suddenly an angel has smiled at me and kissed my cheek without a trace of fright. 
incredible poetry, sad boy poetry <laughs> right there. But what happens, Kyle? He gets swooped by the jocks. So swooped. Of course. Gets swooped. I mean, this is, this is a tale as old as time right here. <laughs> uh, a, a sad boy getting swooped by the jock and just being, being sad about it. And, and like you said, the so to speak friend zone is, is Quasimodo's new home. Right. They kiss in front of him. He rips out that Ace of Hearts playing card, tears it up, <laughs> starts crying. Um, the the movie ends with them having some type of weird like three way hand holding session. Um, and then and then like Quasi lets Asmerelda go, and uh, and Quasi is accepted into society after a little girl pets him. Like it's not a hug. It's like she like she like grabs his neck and like rubs his hair like a dog. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah. Uh all in all, what we're left with is is a great Disney sad boy when it comes to Quasimodo. This is not even to mention when he does have his moment of like rage when Captain Phoebus starts rolling up the staircase yes. and Quasi sneaky Sneaky jacked Disney character, by the way. We love a good jacked Disney character. Quasimodo with four arms the size of his own head. Right. Swinging from statues, like one-handed with an entire person and a goat on his body. Like, this dude is jacked. So he's yelling at Captain Phoebus, picks him up. Captain Phoebus is probably like 220, 230, mm-hmm. maybe more. Easily. He's huge. And Quasi is like five feet tall, maybe less. Yeah. Dude picks him up with one hand. It's amazing. Uh, so Quasi's got a sad side, a happy side, a rage side, uh, a lost side, a lonely side. I mean, he's got it all. The Beast has those sides, but they don't shine like Quasi's do. I'm easily advancing Quasimodo to the final four. Yeah. What I, what I like about Quasi in the sad boy tone is his outright jealousy for for the captain um specifically the, the point that i brought up last time and the point that you've brought up where he rips up the the card that esmeralda had given him um but the entire time he's like battling internally of like whether to uphold his jealousy or do what's right so like when he and and phoebus are like discussing whether or not to go save esmeralda which captain's like we got to go save esmeralda quasi turns to his gargoyle friends and says what am i supposed to do go out there and rescue the girl from the jaws of death and the whole town will cheer like i'm some kind of hero she already has her knight in shining armor and it's not me that is a sad boy (laughs) line (laughs) that is a sad boy line and it's that jealousy that i really like um out of quasi but what I really, really like about the beast is that like jump to conclusion that because of one instance of circumstance means that the world's out to get him. And that one circumstantial instance was the enchantress turning him into this beast. And therefore, he thinks that he needs to take revenge on everyone else. It's the same thing with like Davy Jones. Like, this girl hurt me. Well, I'm going to hurt her and then everyone else that comes my way. The Beast has that same mindset, that same energy. 
freaking her dad's just out here picking roses, bro. And he's like, nah, not these roses. Into the cage you go. And then Belle, who is like a heroine who's just ready to fight, is the one that has to challenge him. And even then, he's upholding that like sad boyness of like, the world's out to get me. I don't care. I'm blocking everything out. Even if this girl shows some sort of interest in me, there has to be a second motive. It's like Will Turner, like Elizabeth kissing Jack, him not acknowledging or approaching that in the moment is the same thing here where the beast is not willing to let go in the moment, not willing to communicate feelings. Sad boys love to be sad, but not communicate that they're sad. And the beast does that extremely well. We don't see it in the animated version that like he's sad. We get that sadness out of Evermore in the live action version, but we know Quasi be sad. Like, you know, like Quasi's singing from the top that he's sad. The only difference though is that Quasi has a a very Quasi has a right to be as sad as he is because he was born into like slavery essentially. <laughs> like Claude Frollo wanted to kill him and a priest saw him about to do it and was like, I'm the priest. You killed this baby in front of me. Hell's hell's coming for you, which is great because hell kind of does come from him for him at the end when he burns up uh, at the at the Notre Dame Tower. So I like the misplaced anger out of the beast. Quasi has this anger that is self-contained for basically the entire movie he's just longing for more while the beast is just angry because something has happened and now he's going to throw a lifelong fit about it and not let anyone else help him get out of this fit that's why i'm moving the beast on in this one as the saddest boy which means kadeem you're gonna break the tie (laughs) well this is a hard one (laughs) you both have made excellent points my okay i have a question has anyone seen hunchback 2 because i have seen hunchback 2 but it was a long time ago and it was very forgettable so i remember (laughs) nothing about it but it seems to me that in hunchback 2 i mean he probably became less of a sad boy because hopefully he moved past esmeralda since she was married to what's his name at the uh, captain phobos or phoebus Right. Has anyone has anyone seen it? Can no. you tell me? Is he less no. Of- <laughs> no, and and talking about sequels, the sequel to Beauty and the Beast happens in the middle of Beauty and the Beast. So we don't even know if the beast actually broke out of his sandboy tendencies. Homeboy Tor helped to tear an entire castle in half. Like he he'd been sad boy. Man, this is rough. Um I I'm gonna give this to Quasimodo because he's just so much more dynamic. I feel, but that this was a hard one for me. That's fair. I mean, when we're we're down to the nitty gritty of sad boys, I'd hope that some of these matchups get a little harder, and this definitely was one of them. So Quasimodo is going to move on into the final four. All right, let's talk about this first final four matchup. It is Will Turner versus Davy Jones, and it is Kyle's dream matchup to be talking about two of the saddest boy pirates that there ever were. 
This is a match that I was hoping for from the beginning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And especially, like, Will, Will being the 16 seed is so Will of him to make it, like, this far. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's always seeing himself as this down on his luck, always been wrong, came from presumably nothing uh, as the son of a pirate, and has made his way into this final four predicament where he's facing off against Davy Jones. I talked a lot about both of these guys. Obviously, most of it came in the first episode when I broke down their storylines. Um, and what really makes Will begin to uh, accelerate out of, but contained within the sad boyness, is the entire marriage scene in the in the third movie. So, like, Will and Elizabeth, by this point of the battle of pirates versus Davy Jones, have had the worst relationship as far as communication goes that you could probably ever have. Um, and Will seizes on the moment of danger and drama to convince Barbosa to host a, a, a wedding, a marriage ceremony on the deck of the Flying Dutchman or on the deck of the Black Pearl. And he does it. And so in the most like dramatic fashion, the two of them get married, holding hands, switching swords for some reason, back-to-back fighting the fish folk <laughs> that have boarded the Black Pearl. And that's such a like brash move by Will to just make something happen because he thinks that's what needs to happen. Um, and like, maybe it does, uh, but he also ends up getting stabbed and ends up dying and doesn't get to see his wife except for once every 10 years. So a really desperate move on Will's part, a really brash move on will's part i guess because he thought they both were gonna die and at least let's get married before we do but that's such a romantic thing for him to think that it feels very sad boy very like desperate let's go ahead and do it but he's also facing off against like the most desperate pirate in the world who is willing to like cut out a body part and hide it in order to like escape his pain chris brought up that a big sad boy quality is like running away from your problems well what's better than cutting out your problem or what you think is your problem and then running away from it and never seeing it again. You know, that's that's dramatic. Also the fact that like this is somebody who lives like in a bog which is on water. I'm talking about Calypso and in which like presumably he probably could see she's the goddess of the sea like the fact that he was so hellbent on being feeling bad for himself and taking it out on everyone around him is just so it's just so indicative of how like sad boy he is you know like he doesn't ever want to address the problem he never wants to try and solve for that problem he just thinks that everything's against him because of that one instant and therefore he needs to make sure it never happens again by quite literally killing people to do so. The only thing is that when we've been talking about Sad Boy, like 
we <laughs> Chris and I had talked before we even done this bracket and he was like you know in a rut you just you think about Disney Mania and you think about sad boys singing singing songs and like well is just the embodiment of sad boy I've been done wrong because of love to the point where I'm going to complain about it but never actually do anything about it. Like, Will doesn't go on a killing terror like Davy do- Jones does. Um, so it's hard for me because I, I like them both. But I think in that Disney mania vein, there's nothing more sad boy than like letting out those emotions by leaning into music. And that's exactly what my boy Davy Jones does. He just puts that emotion and energy right into his organ, goes ahead and plays. It reminds him of tough times. He starts feeling bad. He starts crying a little bit, realizes he's crying. And he's like, no, she did wrong to me. <laughs> I'm going to go kill everybody once again. Chris, tough one. Davy Jones is going to move on for me. Yeah, Will's got that teen energy that I really, really love. Yeah. I know that we love his turn into Davy Jones. But like, who did it first? You know, <laughs> like we can't really give him credit for that because he that's not his thing. Like sure. that's that's this guy's thing he's going up against. I mean, when I think of Will Turner, I don't think of him as Davy Jones. I don't think of him as swashbuckling pirate battling a pirate army in the middle of a maelstrom. Like I picture him walking up to a military strategy session and throwing a sword down and be like, we have to get Elizabeth back. And then being like, we're trying to plot like a strategic um, game plan here to get these pirates back who totally clowned us. And he's like, but we, we got to get Elizabeth. He, like, says, he says, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. And then Commodore Norrington's like, don't make the mistake of thinking you're the only one here that cares about Elizabeth, bro. Like this, her dad is right there. Like I'm supposed to get married to her. We know about Elizabeth, all right? <laughs> it just, I mean, everything he does is, is for Elizabeth, even when he's Davy Jones, like, it's really for Elizabeth so that he can be alive and also hang out with Elizabeth every 10 years on some, on some sandy beach, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about, talking about playing music. Uh, Davy Jones is in touch with all of his emotions. If there's one super positive thing you can take away from being a sad boy, it's just being able to access any of your emotions at any given moment. Like, I know what I'm feeling right now. I mean, some people can't access that. I mean, right. it's one thing to talk. It's one thing to talk about it. Um, but it seems like Davy Jones feels things genuinely feels things, which is strange. He doesn't have a heart. Don't know how he does it, but like. When they're on, when they do the little do you fear death scene, Davy Jones teleports over to Jack Sparrow and they're doing some little back and forth about you owe me a soul. I got to give you Will. And Jack's like, Will's in love, bro. It's going to get married. And like Davy is triggered by that. And you can see that in his face. It's like, don't be talking about love to me. Like, I don't. (laughs) I don't like that. Like I'm start starting to feel things again. Happens again when Bootstrap Billy is whipping Will. 
after Will does something, like Davy Jones is loving it. He sees yeah. that like uh physical pain Will's going through and also like the emotional pain that Bill is going through, having to like, you know, inflict pain upon his son and he he's thriving in that moment. Also in the third movie when Cutler Beckett steps on his boat and he's like, remember how uh, I made you kill your pet Kraken, right? And like Davy's like, (laughs) 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 it's like, it's a a very dark memory is triggered inside of him. So like, and that's really what I love about Davy Jones is it's, it's just a whole lot of emotion happening in every single scene that he's in. I mean, he absolutely steals the show. Great actor, great character, well-written effects. Like you said that for the most part, stand up. I also am sending Davy Jones to the finals. Sorry, Will Turner. Kadeem, do you agree with this decision? You know, I went back and forth on this. Um, He does have, you know, Will is like literally the, epitome of a a sad boy but the fact that davy jones has so many emotions that he literally cut his own heart out and he still feels them somehow he's got to be the one all right let's hop over to other side who will davy jones meet it's number six quasimodo versus number seven anakin skywalker we went through episode one anakin little boy episode three anakin dude who has officially snapped we haven't really talked a whole lot about episode two, Anakin. So I want to get into some of that stuff because I have a lot of great moments. Like I said, you would have to read the entire Star Wars script if you wanted to go through like every single Anakin moment that was sad boy because it's everything out of his mouth. Just <laughs> It's surprising almost. You're like, there's, there's no way that like in this moment, he's going to say something ridiculously sad boy, right? He sure is. He definitely is. So... So we're kind of like being reintroduced to Anakin, really, at the beginning of episode two. And we're learning that he has been going through adolescence and and he's he's being a a teenage boy, which is interesting. I mean, like teenagers are going to be teenagers. Right. And when you think about Jedi, you think about little tiny Buddhists that that are so at peace with themselves that they don't feel emotions. But like teenager, teenager. And it's fun to see Anakin be a teenager. So. Much like we talked about with um, a few other characters early in the bracket, we get to see how the characters we already know react to Anakin. So Anakin reunites with Padme, and they have a, a decent conversation, and Padme walks away, and Anakin's like, she hardly noticed me. All I do is think about her every day for the last 10 years. And Obi-Wan and Jar Jar, of all people, playing the voice of Regan, like, bro, she was happy to see us, man. Like, right. that, was, that was a great exchange. Like, why are you freaking out over nothing? And then when they decide that they need to run away to Naboo to hide from the secret assassin, Anakin starts going off about Obi-Wan. For the first time, he goes off about Obi-Wan several times in these prequels, but this is like the first time he's like, Obi-Wan doesn't understand me. Meanwhile, Padme's trying to pack her suitcase and she's literally just looking at him like, I don't know what you're talking about right Mm -hmm, now. mm -hmm. I don't know what you're so worked out about. I'm just trying to pack my clothes here. (laughs) Like... (laughs) uh, Why are you ranting to me? It's, It's like a great 
great reaction. And, and like I said, it's that kind of like sad boy delusion where you don't really perceive reality correctly. We get them run away together to Naboo, and I have to talk about it here. Please. The all-time greatest Anakin's speech about sand. Yep. So strange. Padme is talking about how she used to swim as a child on the lake, and, and they used to lay on the sand, and it was so nice to soak up the sun. And how does Anakin respond to that? Oh, that sounds really lovely. That's that's really cool. It is a beautiful place here. His response is, I don't like sand. <laughs> so coarse and uncomfortable and it gets everywhere. It's not soft like you. And he starts rubbing her skin <laughs> for like 15 seconds. There's no speaking. It's just Anakin like rubbing her skin. Uh, and then and then and then they start macking, dude. Like, like, uh, what? What is going on here? <laughs> it truly is the the all time greatest Anakin Skywalker quote, and it's one of those things that, like I said, if you're looking at this from a Star Wars perspective, it's silly and needs to be deleted from history. But like, if you're looking at for sad boy emo Anakin moments, like this, this is the absolute peak right here. On that same trip. He's feeding Padme pears. He's trying to be like romantic boy. They're sitting by the fire. He reveals his feelings to her. She kind of like doesn't. She's like, we can't do this. Regardless of how we feel about each other. And Anakin's like, so you do feel something. <laughs> it's like in Dumb and Dumber when so <laughs> Boyd Christmas is like, so you're telling me there's a chance. It's like. <laughs> That's what you got out of this conversation? <laughs> like, did you not hear 95% of the other things that just came out of my mouth right now? Oh, uh, man. I mean, episode two has so many tears. It reaches another climax when they go back to Tatooine to save Shmi Skywalker. She go. Anakin gets really mad, and he somehow manages to pin it on Obi-Wan yet again. Right. And we get him crying big tears and another sad boy let me throw something as hard as i can he has like a little wrench he's i don't he looks like he's fixing an air conditioner or something and he's like he says it's all obi-wan's fault he's jealous he's holding me back and he like throws the wrench down a hallway it is incredible anyways he he turns heel he manages to suck Padme kind of into the, the emo state at some point. They become that emo couple where they just, they just totally give into it. They're running around, sneaking around. Uh, I mean, I could go on for days, Kyle. Quasimodo, <laughs> like I said, displays a lot of range. Really, the only true argument I could make for Quasimodo would be like he's really authentically Disney and... Anakin is like pre-Disney Star Wars. So like, do we want to count him or not? Uh, I personally had a much better time getting to know sad emo Anakin. So I am advancing Anakin to the finals. Yeah, I think I'm going to do the same exact thing for the same exact reasons as you. Uh, and, you know, the the plethora of sad boy moments. I do hang on like how Disney is prequel star wars anakin like to make it here but 
I think I'm fine with it uh, because Quasimodo has a sad boy storyline that is mixed into the fact that he just is almost more like childlike, you know, just hasn't experienced the world. And so a lot of his frustrations comes from being locked up and seeing like what life could be. Um, and that's not him being overdramatic. It's that those moments are him really just yearning for a normal life, even out there, you know, like it's, it's a sad boy sounding song, but it's brought on to him because of circumstances that were out of his control, as opposed to like a lot of these folks who think the world is out to get them when it's not. Quasimodo's world was actually out to get him. <laughs> he was born into a world in which it was out to get him because of his differences, because of his circumstances uh, being found and, you know, saved by a priest and forced to live under uh, Claude Frollo. So, yeah, I'm with you, Anakin's moving on. Kadeem, we have a final two in which it's featuring a a pirate sea monster and a whiny Jedi. Uh, did you think when we first started this that this was going to be the matchup? I think that, like, after we first talked about Davy Jones, like, the first time, yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. like, this is, this, is, this is the inevitable conclusion. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. The, both of these <laughs> have storylines that they're introduced to us being sad boys because of circumstances their love stories create them into sad boys and they end up in this like dramatic sand boy sand boy uh anakin hates sand how dare i call him they're sand both boy. kind of sand boys. they're both kind of sand boys they both hate sand because they can't davy can't live on it and anakin just hates it so chris would you like to do the honors of leading off this uh final two matchup here I I don't really know where to begin or where to end with these. Uh, they have a lot of similarities. They're both... We both meet them as, as sad boys of sorts, and, and they remain sad boys of sorts. They, they're never really saved. I mean, I guess Anakin is saved many movies later at the end of Return of the Jedi when he sacrifices himself to save his son. I guess that's the only thing that can save a sad boy is is choosing to help other people. But I think when we're talking about him as a sad boy, we're really talking about the Star Wars prequels. I think I think that makes the most sense for our conversations. Davy Jones so much more stylistically sad boy. I mean, I had a great friend who was very into the alternative scene in high school and he started a band and they used Davy Jones imagery in in their like band art. I'm into it. <laughs> and they used tons of Davy Jones lyrics. Like this was <laughs> this was a personality type that resonated with people who who were emotional, who who felt they were jilted by lovers. Love uh, his relationship to the sea. Uh, the sea is a place of darkness. It, it's a place of beauty. It's a place of despair. It's a place of comfort. It's it's a, a, a 
place where life is created, but also a place where things come to die. Like the sea is got so many things going on and, and tying Davy Jones emotions to the sea, I think, I think amplifies his, his state of being as a sad boy. I think the thing Anakin has that Davy Jones doesn't have is people around him to, to react to his, his emotional outbursts. I mean, Davy Jones doesn't really have a lot of emotional outbursts, but you know, when he does kind of like start going to that level, it almost like motivates his, his crew and his followers to, to, to follow him into battle and that kind of stuff. It starts raining when Calypso's freed. And and the rain's hitting Davy's face, and he's just like, and and the battle begins right there. Anakin has Obi Wan around him. He's got Qui Gon Jinn. He's got C three PO. He's got Padme and Yoda and Mace Windu and the Emperor and all these people around him. Uh, and it's it's interesting to see how he deals with them. I think like. I think an important part of being a sad boy is is interacting with people. And, and Davy Jones' mental state is very sad boy, but like we don't really get to see him go out there a lot and, and face the world and, and go through ups and downs. He just kind of stays the same. And, and seeing Anakin's epic emotional journey is just so powerful. In, in the best way and also the worst way. Uh, I think Pirates is an authentic, memorable, identifiable Disney property, but I think Anakin is the rightful winner of this bracket. So I, I'm crowning Anakin Skywalker as the saddest Disney boy. When you brought up how the sad boy interacts with his environment and how they interact with the sad boy, I almost disagree with that because I think that what makes a, a lot of the sad boy is how they internalize that sad boyness and then choose to act upon it. So like it's that whole thing of not wanting to communicate, only thinking that the world's out to get them despite what the world is saying to them. It's all internalized. And Davy Jones does that so well. I like that those in, those internalizations, even if he seems like you know, the people around him are just kind of following his lead. He does have those emotional outbursts because of this. And one that we haven't talked about quite yet is when his heart is dug up on the island in the second movie and they're battling for whatever and it swaps hands so many times. And Tia Dama have had given Jack the the jar of dirt to keep the heart in. And Norrington ends up swooping the heart and running off like as if he's saving the day by being the distraction for the the fish people. And so when they actually uh, capture the the jar of dirt, it's not the heart's not in there. And Davy Jones, in the most sad boy way, looks up to the sky and screams, "Damn you, Jack Sparrow!" Like. That's that Darth Vader moment of like down on the knees, just being like, no, like that's that's Davy Jones right there. Looked up to the sky and just screamed. Also, like the fact that. Here's how I interpret the scene in which he's yelling at he's screaming at the sky when it's raining on him, when Calypso gets free to start that storm. 
when they're having that conversation in in the the like jail cell of of the flying dutchman he's like the the pirate brethren are getting together and they're going to decide whether to keep you or release you like if you're released like what are you gonna do and she's like, i'm gonna bring the wrath of the sea on to them and whatever and then manipulative davy jones flips the switch and like leads her back on to thinking that there's still a chance for them like he still loves her he's going like at the end of all of this he's still going to be with her because he knows that he can use her to his advantage if he does face off if he does face off against them and she's on his side then like great but what happens is when they release calypso the pirates remind Calypso of who put her into that body in the first place. And then it's that like reverse Uno reverse card put onto Davy Jones this time in which Calypso is, is doing what was done to her, but to Davy Jones, which is seek this revenge. And for him to like scream at the, at the sky as if the world's out to get him. Like, yes, Davy Jones, the world is out to get you now because what you thought you wanted and what you thought you were doing this entire time was not it at all. And even to his dying breath, he thinks that this love is what he is meant to be, where he is meant to be, what he is supposed to have. And as he falls into the maelstrom, he goes, I'm coming, Calypso, and falls into the into the pit. My man Davy Jones is a sad boy to his last breath. Davy Jones for me is the saddest Disney boy, which means Kadeem to end this bracket, you are going to choose who is truly the saddest Disney boy. Is it Davy Jones or is it Anakin Skywalker? Oh, this is another tough one. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I like them both for this crown for different reasons. For for Anakin, I do think that, you know, he has that teenage angst feeling kind of like a little bit like Will Turner, the way he interacts with the characters that actually, you know, do care about him. He betrays them. They become scapegoats for his problems. He is, like, irrationally angry with them. Um, He just becomes singularly focused on Padme and, and what he wants, and he makes many questionable decisions about it. Uh, He's just overly emotional all the time about literally everything. And (laughs) I'll never forget him crawling out of the pit like, I hate you! (laughs) 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 If that is not a sad boy temper tantrum, or the, no! You know, upon finding out that Padme dies. I feel like Davy Jones is... Uh, well, one more thing about Anakin. Anakin is also just so like frustrating and annoying, like sad boys are. Yeah. Um, Davy Jones, he's very, I think, realistically identifiable, which is why you know, as Chris was saying, like he had a friend who latched on to that and incorporated that in like his sad boy activities. Um, he, I think, is a a better written character uh, than Anakin. There's more, there's more nuance 
Um, there's more, you know, metaphorical things going on in his story, which I think provides an opportunity for like, I don't know, experiencing like a deeper well of feeling with the character. Um, so like, this is rough. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm gonna have to go with, it's gotta be Anakin, but that was really hard. <laughs> Let's go! Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I'm glad that it was that difficult because that's when we know that we found what could potentially be the true final two. So, everyone, the saddest Disney boy has been crowned, and that would be Anakin Skywalker. And as we do at the end of every single episode, we are going to clap it out. Chris, I don't know why I ever doubted that whiny Anakin or a whiny character from Star Wars would not win the saddest Disney boy bracket. Uh, but here we are, and Anakin takes the crown. I honestly was. I would be surprised. When I saw the field of 16, I was like, this could be a really even battle amongst all 16. And then once... I started rewatching Star Wars. I was like, this man has no competition whatsoever. He is in a league of his own. So, I mean, I'm not really surprised, but I'm kind of surprised. Kareem, thank you so much for joining us on this sad, sad adventure. It's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, it's always a pleasure. Y'all sad listeners out there know how to reach us. You've got something to say. If you want to be a co-host, hit us up. Email us, mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Discord. All of those are linked in the description of this podcast. Tune in next week. We have got a great bracket, great episode. We have been working for literally years on this episode. So please listen to it. I can't wait. I know Kyle can't wait. We will see you then. We'll leave you with a question. Do you fear death?